Before the sermon, I want to uh, introduce somebody to you. Uh, Will and Katie Lowry are here, uh, good friends of Hannah Johnson's. Uh, they're on their way to Birmingham, England, uh, to work with the church planning movement there. And um, they're in the midst of raising a team of people to financially and prayerfully support their work. And so they're going to be here afterwards. And we'd love to talk to any of you that would be interested and hearing about what they're doing, and hopefully some of you would be interested in supporting them too. So uh, catch up with Will and Katie afterwards, and their two little ones, Judah and Azalea, who are pretty simple and adorable. So, um, Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is where we're going to be, and we're going to be talking about the problem of power today. Uh, power, how... Uh, we use it, how it feels to us, how we ought to use it, and think about it. Uh, it sort of seems now like power is the locus of cynicism in our culture. It used to be uh, the cynic's motto would be, follow the money. Right? When you see someone making a decision or doing something, you assume they're really motivated by money, and if you trace the money trail back, you get to the real reason of what's, why somebody's doing what they're doing. But uh, more and more, power has sort of taken the place of money as that rubric. Like, if you want to know of why someone's doing something, try to figure out who gains power from it. And this is a habit that seemed to have started in, the, started in the academy, but it's pretty much on the street level now as a way of understanding things. So when we see people saying they're doing something out of a love for freedom, we suspect maybe they really are looking for power, or if it's love, or truth, or values, or the family, or whatever else people use as reasons for why they do something, you know, the cynic in all of us is pretty uh, geared to think about power. Is this really a power play in disguise? Is, is, are they after power and don't even know it themselves? So those are the kind of questions that our culture asks. Solomon, the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, uh, is also relatively cynical about power. Uh, that's what our passage is about today. And he talks about it not so much as in terms of how you fix the problems we have with power, but more uh, as part of his lament about how living in a broken world is hard and vexing. And a lot of what he says is just, isn't this the way things are, and doesn't that make life under the sun hard or worse? But what he also does uh, through some of his you know, dark talks about it is he goads us, and what's our appetite for something better? Uh, he said, this is the way things are, but think about how things could be. And really, what he says prepares us for what Jesus Christ says and said and lived out about power and what it looks like in his kingdom. So that's what we're going to think about. Let me pray for us, and, uh, and then we'll read the scripture. Also, I don't like to do this very often, but I'm going to give some credit <laughs> to N.T. Wright. Some of you know an author really helped me a lot in this sermon, and you know, those of you who know how hard it is for me to give credit will really appreciate N.T. Wright's influence. So, let's pray. Father, um, I pray for myself and my friends here that you would help us. You know, power is a problem for us, both to watch how it works in the world and to see how uh, poorly we handle it ourselves. And we pray for your mercy uh, to reshape us. Uh, we pray that your Son, Jesus Christ, would have His way in us so that we might be more like Him. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me beginning at verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 8. 
I say keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Don't take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. The word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he doesn't know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Right at the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement, uh, when Martin Luther King was a pastor in Montgomery, Alabama, and was a fairly vocal leader in the city bus strike, um, he was getting you know, his first taste of really violent pushback from white supremacists in Alabama, and uh, they were threatening him, and the, the bus strike turned out to be pretty effective. But as a result of it, uh, somebody firebombed his house. And while his wife and child were both there, they were all pretty young. The pictures are amazing how young they were when they were doing this. And uh, that evening, as the fire was put out, a bunch of people came and gathered in their front yard uh, with guns and shovels and sticks and whatever else they could find, and they were furious. And King got up to address them, and what he said was pretty remarkable. When he said, go home. And he said, I want you to love your white brothers. And I want you to meet their hate with love. Now, if we heard somebody speaking that way, responding that way today, I mean, my first thought would be cynical. I would think, yeah, he, he doesn't. He's kind of mentally counting up the sticks and guns and shovels and is going to wait for a few more guns and shovels before they can really do something and take action. But what we eventually saw with King is that this wasn't a tactical calculation for him. It was how he saw the world. He was looking at the world um, through eyes shaped by the hope that he had in Jesus Christ uh, that caused him to look at power in a very different light and to think about violence in a very different light. Uh, he was not only following the example that Jesus set in his life and ministry with regard to power, but he was also putting his hope in Jesus' power to work through these crazy means of nonviolence and love and forgiveness rather than the assertion of violent power. And it was a... Uh, foolish way to approach the problems that King was trying to address, right? Because, you know, in the real world, we know how power works. It works when you assert it and you back it up with violence. And so his idea, courageous though it was, idealistic maybe, though it was to be nonviolent in his response to injustice, um, to say, I'm going to respond to pretty dramatic injustice in my world and in my life with forgiveness and with love, with generosity, 
and reconciliation, or the Bible shorthand for that would be grace. Right? He's going to depend on grace as his response, and the way he approaches power is shaped by the grace of Jesus in his life. There's not a politician anywhere in the country, though, who thinks I believe that. <laughs> I listen to how they appeal to me. Um, they know I think about power just exactly like they do. Just like they do. And they know that when it comes down to it politically or in any other situation of power, that I'll ignore what Jesus says about power and I will sell my soul for a bowl of political porridge if it comes down to it without much resistance. And what I realize, and what I've realized this week thinking about what Solomon said in this passage, is that when it comes to power, I'm a, I'm a straight-up pagan. And uh, I'm wondering why. And so I want us to explore a little bit, because I kind of suspect that you are too. And uh, look at what he says, and look at where he points us, to think about how power works in our lives, and how it might really be different because of Jesus' influence with us. So... First, I want to talk about the way things are, and then second, the way they should be. Right, so first, the way they are, and that's what Solomon talks about the most here. This is a really difficult passage. If you brought a Bible and have a different translation, it probably sounded pretty different from what I read. You know, we're, we're dealing with, what, 2,500 years, language and culture barriers. It's hard to translate well. We, we're given such gifts by people who study and do translations, but this passage seems to baffle the best. And so there's a lot. We're not exactly sure what they're saying. You know, when he first starts out, he says, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. And that sort of sounds like what you read in the New Testament, just describing what it means to be a good citizen. You know, like Romans chapter 13 talks about that we should submit to governing authorities for God's sake, and that's the right ethic to have. And at first you start reading, you think that's what he's talking about. But he, he goes to a different place from there, actually. You know, the first verse says, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. In my version, some of yours might say, because you took an oath before God, you should keep the king's command. He's saying you pretty much have to keep the king's command. That's a given, but um, it's vexing. It's vexing. Uh, he winds up not giving us a moral lesson about the importance of respecting authority. He gives us a lesson about how hard it is to live in a world when people abuse authority. Alright? So, and when he describes the problem, he kind of sums it up in verse 9. All this I observed while the fire of my heart is all that's done under the sun. When man had power over man to his hurt. And that's kind of ambiguous. Who is, who is his in that sentence? Um, Tripper Longman, Old Testament scholar, says, when men have power over other people to harm them is the sense of what he's saying. When people have power over others to harm them, they tend to use that power capriciously and badly. And most of what Solomon says is about how to navigate that. Like, how do you live in a world where there's you know, unreasonable people using power unreasonably in ways that mess up your life? You know, how do you manage that? And in verse 4, you know, it says, Who can say to the king, what are you doing? You know, there's, there's not that much you can do in most situations of power. Um, verse 5, he kind of says you have to pick your battles, you know. You know, the wise in the heart will know the proper time and the just way, tactically. Um, but it's pretty galling because, you know, you have to keep the commands, trying to find a way to, to do the best you can, pick your battles. Verse 6, you know, there's a time and a way for everything. 
but man's trouble lies heavy on him. Even if you're good at this, even if you're very diplomatic and you know how to maneuver in channels of power, it's still golf. And that's what he says. And then he says, but also you got to remember that uh, no matter how much power somebody has, that power is limited. They don't have power over death. He says they don't have power over the future. They can't know or control the future. And it seems like he says they really don't have much power over war. And like you see a lot of politicians feel like they get dragged into wars without really wanting to be. Uh, and they're very hard to get out of and things like that. So power has its limits. Um, but why is, he, why is he talking about this for us? Like, why, why do we need to hear this? And I think the right answer is that, is that we need to think better about power than we do. One, we need to know about what a corrupting force power is in human beings' lives and hearts. And also how seductive an idol power is in our lives. Um, first, it's a corrupting force. You know, Lord Acton said power corrupts us, or an absolute power corrupts absolutely, but really what power does is it exposes our corruption. Uh, power just gives opportunity and provocation to our hearts that are already crooked. Right? And so when we have power, we tend to act out in predictable ways. And it looks like a good person that became corrupt, and what it really is is somebody like us who was given opportunities that we don't have, behaving like we would if we had those opportunities. Right? That's the problem with how people abuse power is they're like us, and so when they get the opportunity and the provocations, they respond like we would. Which is a low anthropology. Right? That's a dark way of looking at human nature, but it's pretty solid ground biblically. Right? So next time you're Next time you're looking at people abusing power, especially in public life, and think about it, you think, hmm, under what circumstances would I do that? Because I'm not under the illusion that I'm a different sort of human, right? And power affects me like it affects other people. It's corrupting. But it's also a seductive idol for us. Power has a compelling appeal in our lives, and it always is a surprising appeal, because nobody really thinks of themselves power hungry, I don't think, or not many people do. You know, I was struck, we were reading the uh, gospel reading about how when James and John's mother went to ask Jesus for power, you see, she went and knelt down before him. You know, in other words, she was probably feeling as jacked up holy as she ever feels in her life. She didn't think, I love power, mm, power, how can I get power? No, she's thinking, I, I, you know, I love Jesus and I want to have an influence for him. I want my sons. And she comes and kneels down. She's not thinking she's power hungry, but she's dead power hungry. Right? And that's how this idol works. Solomon's sort of pulling back curtains so we won't be so easily seduced by idols of power. You remember uh, when Jesus got tempted? You may not know about this, but at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he was uh, very famously tempted by the devil after a 40-day fast in the wilderness. One of the temptations was for power. Right? Look at all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you these kingdoms if you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, do you remember what his response was? He said, it's written you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Well, why do you say that? Why didn't you just say no? <laughs> because he said, the temptation you're holding out to me is, a, is an idolatrous temptation. And so to worship and serve the Lord God only is to say, 
I'm not going to bow down to the idols of power. Those are rival gods and not appropriate for me. So power and God are kind of either-or choices in our lives. Will you worship and trust and seek power, or will you worship and trust and seek God? It's kind of it's very dramatic what he says about that because we don't think about power that way. He says the same kind of thing about money. He says you're either going to trust and worship money or you're going to trust and worship me. And in my life, I think, I'll have both, right? <laughs> I, I can, you know, take money really seriously and God really seriously, and that should work. And power, I think we definitely give ourselves the benefit of the doubt on because we're not as suspicious. We know we're greedy, but we don't think we're power hungry. So we think, sure, I can take responsibility. I can take power on myself without misusing it. I can worship God at the same time. And Jesus took this really bright, clear line and says, no, it's one or the other. You know, you either worship God or you put your trust and devotion in power. And that comes out a couple of ways. You know, if you, if you trust and worship power, especially think about it politically, that's the easiest way to uh, look at it and think about power. But you either put too much trust in power and kind of have a messianic hope for what can happen in the political sphere. To say our only help and redemption comes from our collaborative effort governmentally. That that's the only hope for change and uh, beauty in the world. Right? That's the, our only hope for things to be the way they're supposed to be is through our collective political action or trust in a, in a particular leader. And this is like a false messiah, someone other than Jesus coming to our rescue to save us. So that's one of the temptations that comes with the idol of power. The other is uh, loyalty. Like, uh, like over-loyalty to uh, someone in power or some system of power or some nation. Right? And so that a Christian nationalism is a worship of the idol of power. Like we saw, you know, very dramatically portrayed in the 1930s in the German church as they began to bring um, Nazi paraphernalia into the church as paramounts and very much adopted a God and country stance. Of course, anytime you have a God and anything stance, whatever fills in the blank after and becomes way more important than God, right? So the German Christians in the 30s wrote the Barman Declaration, which is a very uh, famous and bold statement of faith that said, you know, we will not worship uh, adjective Christianity or God and uh, Christianity. Jesus Christ alone is the Lord. And so uh, it was a real stand in the face of a pretty overwhelming Christian nationalism that they faced. But, you know, we're not immune from that either. I remember, I mean, if you remember after 9-11, why some of you children weren't even born then, I realized, but trust me, back in the day, but uh, we had a worship service in the National Cathedral after 9-11 in which we brought all of the potential mascot deities into the National Cathedral and established a pantheon and said, we'll ask all the gods to be our mascot as our nation and help us. And tried to drag Jesus in as just another religious option or faith. And Jesus, you may have learned, if you've been around much, is not willing to be co-opted into anyone's pantheon. <laughs> uh, he is the Lord of Lords, he says, and that's pretty unequivocal in the Scripture. But the temptation to over-loyalty to power 
uh, is certainly not foreign to us. I'll give you an example. This is like the kind of example that gets you Monday morning emails. But um, a candidate that got the best traction with evangelical Christians in the 2016 election uh, made a campaign stop at Dort University, used to be Dort College, which is a small uh, liberal arts college run by Reformed Presbyterians. In other words, it was our tribe, right? It was us. And uh, the appeal made, the calculation made by the candidate was, I think I know how Christians think about power. And so this was the promise made. Christianity will have power if I'm elected. If I'm in there, you're going to have plenty of power. And you don't need anyone else. And the Christians at Dort rose up as one and said, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Except they didn't do that. They said, yes please. <laughs> yes please. Now I'm not doing that to tell you how to vote. If you listen to me about how to vote, you're enough. But um, <laughs> what I'm saying is, somebody who's savvy as a political calculator decided, how do we appeal to Christians? who believe what we believe. What's going to be persuasive to them? In other words, watching us, what do they conclude about us? And they concluded that we think about power just like any other pagan thinks about power. They concluded that the American Evangelical Church has way more in common with the 1930s German church than it does with Martin Luther King in the 1960s in the way it thinks about power. And they're holding a mirror up to us when they do this so that we can realize, hey, this is a problem for us. This is a problem for us. They, they nailed us. Describe us exactly right as a perfect political calculation. Because we're naive when we think about power as Christians generally and are susceptible to its seductive idolatry. Um, but to talk about that is just to feel bad about Power and scared about what power actually does to us, and that's not the point of this. Uh, the real point of this is a goad for us to think about how power could be, and how we could deal with power as Christians under the influence of Jesus in a different way than we usually do. Um, the advice of Jesus about power is not, we got to get the baddies out of power and put the goodies into power, right? That's not, that's not Jesus' approach to our uh, power issues. You know, get rid of the baddies, put in the goodies, because they're the same people. Right? He's not saying, you're, put in the power of the people who are convinced that your way of understanding political life is the one biblical way. Uh, and get rid of the people that a lot of other Christians who believe everything you do about the gospel think is the one true Christian way to approach politics. And then uh, you'll use power rightly. That's not the solution. Jesus, when he talks about power, talks about a whole different way of thinking about power. Um, what some people have called an upside-down way of thinking about power in our lives. And you see it in his example, what he did, the, the New Testament passage we read in Philippians 2, where he said he didn't grasp his power, but he came and he, and he laid his life down. He became a servant to us. He endured the humiliations of life as a human being uh, for our sakes. And out of love, laid down his life for us. This is how Jesus used power 
Not because he just eschewed power altogether, but because he's redeeming power. This is his plan to take over the world and rule it as the one king of kings and lord of lords. It's not a weakness is great uh, per se. But he's saying, in my kingdom, this is the way power works. This is the way it's exercised. This is the way I do it, and this is the way I send you to do it. So when the disciples came asking, can we be on the right or left hand? Can we have some power in your kingdom? He said, look, everybody normal uses power the normal way. They lord it over other people. The Gentiles all do this. Everybody does this. It's, it's normal life for anyone who's smart and realistic to use power the way everybody uses power. Uh, use violence, use coercion as best you can, whatever, whatever leverage you have, use it. And he said, in my kingdom, it's not that way. He says, if you want to be great, you have to be a servant. Uh, if you want to be first, uh, you have to be everyone's slave. Because just like I came, as the Son of Man, I came uh, not to be served, but to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for many. Now that's a crazy way of thinking about power. Uh, that the thing you do with power is you give it away. Is what Jesus is saying? Or do you use it to... Uh, uh, submit yourself to other people that use power to sacrificially give away yourself and your prerogatives and your privileges for the sake of other people. And that's what um, the Bible says is foolish in everybody's eyes. The Apostle Paul said that. This is foolishness to the Greeks. Right? The, the foolishness of the cross as a way of Inserting yourself into the world and thinking about authority and power is, uh, it just looks nuts to people. Right? But Jesus said, I'm sending you into the world the same way I came into the world. You, my servants, you're going to go laying down your lives for the sake of other people, and that's how my kingdom is going to come. Not by you grasping the reins of power in church, in public life, or whatever your little fiefdom is. Grasping power is not the way my kingdom comes and goes forward. My, my kingdom comes by the way of the cross, where you die for your enemies and love your enemies. Not own your enemies, not embrace violence, but extending mercy and love and forgiveness to your enemies, which is what Jesus Christ did for us. If you take Jesus seriously on this, it's going to make you some, a wild-eyed utopian. I was thinking, if John Lennon read what Jesus said about power, he'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa now, we've got to be practical. You know, <laughs> I mean, imagine one thing, but ye, you know, laying down your life for other people. Come on. Give you a couple of examples. Uh, part of this one's apocryphal, but I'm a preacher, and that doesn't stop me. Uh, at the Yalt Conference after World War II, FDR and Churchill were there. Stalin was there as well, and they were basically trying to divvy up the world after the fall of Germany. And Churchill or FDR one, I think Churchill uh, suggested that they ask the Pope to come and be a part of the peace conference. And Stalin's apocryphal but not inaccurate uh, response was, was said to be the Pope, how many divisions does he have? In other words, dude, I live in the real world. Why do I need some pointy-headed pointy-headed man who is a fool coming to talk about real things in the world. 
And of course, you know, this, the attitude uh, under Marxism is that you know, religion is useful at best, but certainly not true. And after that, the Iron Curtain goes up, Eastern Europe, we think, man, it's going to be like this forever. When I was growing up, we never had any thought that anything was going to change in the Cold War, except that maybe it will go hot. And mutual assured destruction was like our plan, you know? And we thought that was probably about the best plan you could come up with because Eastern Europe was a solid block and that wasn't going to ever change. And in the middle of this uh, time, you know, about the time I was coming of age in the world, God raises up a man of prayer in Poland. He's a Catholic priest and he became a bishop in Poland and then he became an archbishop in Poland. And then, against anyone's odds, it never happened before, he becomes the Pope. John Paul II, the Pope. Like, we started new jokes after that. Is the Pope Polish? You know? <laughs> and, uh, but John Paul II becomes the Pope about the time the Solidarity Movement kicks off in Poland. And the faith of Christians in Poland tore down communism in that country. Tore it down. How many divisions does he have? <laughs> not so fast, my friend. It's not with divisions, but you may be underestimating the threat here. Actually, they gave uh, credibility to protest movements in other countries as well. In Czechoslovakia, which doesn't have anywhere near the same Christian heritage that Poland has, though, you may remember the scenes in which people flooded into Prague, huge masses in the city, not with guns or shovels or sticks or tanks, but with candles. And they stood in Prague in masses praying. And they killed Czechoslovakian communists. Uh, it's foolishness to the world. How many divisions does he have? Uh, what kind of question do you ask now about those who are following Jesus and using power the way he used it. Another example. Of course, Byron shows up today when I'm going to use a South Africa example, so if I get it wrong... I would know. Yeah. You'll know, <laughs> but you don't have to tell everyone. Um, <laughs> in 1975, basically because of the, you know, the growing untenability of the apartheid system, civil war was imminent in South Africa. No one had any real hope that there was any other future. It's a it's a shame, but this is coming, and there's no real way to avoid it or avert it. But God had a man that was getting up in the morning and praying for about three or four hours every day, and then going out the rest of the day talking to people about a whole different way of thinking about power and reconciliation and what could happen. Of course, it was idealistic and utopian and couldn't have any influence. If you told somebody in 1975 that in 1995 there would be a black archbishop leading a truth and reconciliation commission in which black thugs and white thugs came together to publicly confess their appalling crimes and to seek personal and national reconciliation. 1975, everybody said, you're a fool and you're crazy and that couldn't possibly happen. But there's Desmond Tutu. Looking at power the way Jesus looks at power, 
and turning the world upside down through it. There was Desmond Tutu. There was John Paul II. There was Martin Luther King. Because they believed Jesus' way was a better way. They believed you seek his kingdom through the way of the cross rather than through grasping for power and violence and laying down their lives for their enemies. This is what we're called to. In a world that is suspicious of power, uh, we're supposed to be the most suspicious. Not of other people's power, but of our own. And because Jesus Christ has come to our rescue by laying down his life for us, we're to go into the world to lay our power down and lay our lives down for the sake of other people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, giving us some heroes. Um, they're not perfect like Jesus, but um, it gives us hope uh, to see beauty come out of people walking away the cross, uh, following Jesus and hoping in his power. And we ask that you'd make us like those people, that you'd make us like your son, that you'd let us see our own hearts with regard to power, and that you would uh, send us into the world walking the path of the cross. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We prepare to come to the Lord's table. Let's stand if you're able and confess our faith using the Heidelberg Catechism. Christians, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong to body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Amen. Please be seated. Christian symbols, not a sword. It's a cross. The sacrament of our faith describes the death of our rescuer and champion and king. Uh, it's upside down. But we have when Jesus came to fix the world and set it back to rights, that what had to happen was deep magic, right? Not just superficial change, not just regime change, but transformation of every human heart. And to accomplish that, he went to the cross in our stead. Uh, so our hope and our remembrance is what Jesus did for us on the cross. And we know that to be rightly related to God required his death for us. So we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's not just modeling, uh, but it's partly modeling. Because we know that this was the price that had to be paid for us to be reconciled to God. But if you're somebody who needs to be reconciled to God, this means there's hope for you. It means what Jesus did is enough. So if your faith is in Jesus, come and take the supper today and be reassured that you belong to him, that your sins are forgiven, and your future is secure. If you're not yet a Christian already, don't take the Lord's Supper, but love to have conversation with you or continue conversation with whoever brought you or come talk to me about what it might mean for you to come into faith. Let me pray for us. We thank you, Father, as, um, as seriously as we know how to for what Jesus has done for us. We know that we have no hope besides Him. And so as we come to the table that He's left for us, we pray that You would nourish our faith, that You would strengthen us in our connection to You, 
that you would make our hope feel solid to us more than it usually does. Feed us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to our Lord God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. On the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and having given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. He said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus also took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So drink from it, all of you. And therefore, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Hallelujah. Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Hallelujah. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come take them, remember what Jesus has done for you, and feed on him in your hearts by faith. Come and eat.